Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston. I'm with Abby Cooper, uh, who is our visiting fellow for September 2016. Abby is an assistant professor at Brandeis University. She did her PhD, uh, her dissertation at the University of Pennsylvania. It was uh, titled, Lord, Until I Reach My Home Inside the Refugee Camps of the American Civil War, and was here at Yale University, where she got an MA from the Yale Divinity School and uh, did her undergraduate work at Barnard College. Uh, Welcome, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Could we begin by maybe... Uh, hearing you say a little about how you uh, developed your interest in in history. So how I got interested in history was um, somewhat roundabout. Um, You think you you just gave my nice little genealogy of uh, intellectual beginnings. Uh, Barnard told me, don't declare major, um, just take from every uh, uh, different bag. And I was a theater major, and I was a committed one. Um, And so when I I graduated, I went to um, Mississippi, and uh, there was a great place there called Mississippi Cultural Crossroads where uh, they used theater to really do uh, community healing. And so we did writing workshops and um, used historical sources uh, to tell stories um, from the 19th century to the, uh, uh, through the, the civil rights to the present and talk about what their community was. And you know, as I was doing that, I realized, and I always knew I wanted to go back to grad school, but I, instead of going back for theater, I thought of theater as the medium instead of the thing I wanted to study, what my students and what my, you know, what the community members of Port Gibson, Mississippi showed me was that, you know, history and religion were really not something I understood in my um, distinguished undergraduate experience. So uh, I especially saw that they narrated the civil rights for me on religious terms that I felt like I needed to probe more deeply. So I came here um, to Yale uh, and then um, at Penn studied with uh, Stephanie McCurry and Steve Hahn, who really gave me the history bug and uh, made me say, you have to go back further, you need to go back further, you need to go back further, find the root causes of some of the things I was really interested in probing. And so... You're here and you're working on, on, on the, uh, uh, the project that many of us face of turning that dissertation into a book. Right, right. Uh, it's really a fascinating uh, new take on uh, the contraband uh, camps mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 not, and, and really the people uh, there in the camps. And mm-hmm. could you say a little first about uh, what, these, what these camps were mm-hmm. and, and how many people and where they were spread about and how they came about? Sure, absolutely. So, um, so this, as you said, it was taken from so my dissertation, um, which uh, my advisors had said to me, you know, somebody needs to look at these records. Um, and I uh, 
couldn't believe what was there that wasn't there in, in the literature. Uh, uh, these these camps, that, so they're called contraband camps. Um, you know, I'm calling them in my work, you know, refugee camps. That that's really and actually in the in the uh, record themselves, they're they're calling them refugees. They're calling them um, um, some of them migrants, vagrants. Um, they're it's, there's a real dislocation in which people aren't even sure who's f- legally free and who's been enslaved um, because you start seeing slavery disintegrate. So um, contraband is the term that um, a general uses to say, we're confiscating you from Confederates. You, you're, you're, you're in between slavery and freedom. And so a lot of people then, usually actually all black people, whether they were freeborn or not, get kind of coded as contraband. Um, and that's why these camps become named contraband camps. Hmm. Uh, and they're all over the South, but you know, for all of our mapping of the Civil War, and <laughs> Civil War is not an understudied topic. No, it isn't. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> um, it, I have learned now as I am um, pursuing publishers that it is a a, a tall tower of um, of scholarship that is. It's fascinating to me why this has hasn't been uh, mapped equally well. Um, so I, I hope that help answers a little bit of what you were asking about. Yeah, yes, and I think that it's 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 really uh, interesting that you that you that you both are stressing the way in which these are refugee camps, uh, contrary to the language, the official language, but also that they kind of self describe themselves as as refugees, and especially in this day when. Uh, there's these mass movements of right. people uh, dislocated because of war uh, that we read about in the news all day. It's really a timely uh, uh, piece of scholarship that you're doing. And I know from hearing you talk about your project before that you've, you've uh, in one point, used one woman's story, Mary Armstrong, mm-hmm. to illustrate some of the broader issues that you want to uh, talk about. And mm-hmm. could you just for uh, our audience say a little about mm-hmm. this really amazing woman? Sure. Uh, so, you know, Mary Armstrong is, you know, one of these people you find when you're you know, reading through uh, in the archives, you... Um, you're looking for people. You're looking for people's stories, and especially with um, formerly enslaved people, it's often fragments, and it's it's really hard to piece together um, full lives. I mean, I think it's why we use um, um, slave narratives so much. Um, I um, and and Mary's story comes from the Federal Writers Project um, WPA interviews um, from the 1930s, um, but she tells back to when she was um, 17 years old and um, right at, at, at the era of emancipation. And she's 17. She's in St. Louis, Missouri. She was a nurse um, for her uh, master and mistress, and she could have stayed on as a nurse there once um, you know, it, was, it became a Union-occupied city. And then when the proclamation was issued, um, she says, Mr. Will set us free. And she mean, she says in her interview, away I go in to find my mama. And this just struck me. Okay, that's that's her immediate thought when she uh, she when she learns she's free. That makes complete sense. But her journey 
um, and what she narrates just astounded me. She basically um, gets her free papers and she stuffs them in, in, in her bosom and keeps them hidden in her bosom, then takes a steamboat down the Mississippi River, down to New Orleans. Then she takes, you know, a, a small boat to Galveston, Texas. This is in 18... This is 1863. So the war is still well underway. Yes, this is really right in the middle of, of the war. And, you know, she's already gotten admonition after admonition that Texas is a rough place and there's still a slave trade active in Texas. So she's choosing at that moment not only to go try to find her mama because she knows she's been she's before the war been sold down south and that she heard that she made it to Texas. Um, She's going into what she knows is an active slave trade. She's taking root by root and New Orleans, if she would have, if she was going to get off anywhere, she would have gotten off in New Orleans because New Orleans was occupied. There were black communities there. Um, it, she wouldn't have been re-enslaved, um, but she doesn't. She goes and takes that next boat and goes to Galveston, Texas, where, you know, I've been through the records. There are there's an active slave trade in Galveston, Texas. Um, she goes to Houston, then she goes to Austin, and it's in Austin that uh, she gets picked up on the street and someone says, you know, where are you going? And um, he puts her on a, an auction block. Wow. Um, and she is about, she's been bit off, and she's about to be claimed by her buyer. Uh, and it's this, and this is this, this moment where she that she talks about, She she she's on a stage, so... She pulls out her papers and she says, um, I'm free, so you can't have me. And, and she holds them up and, she, and he goes, well, let me see those papers. And she says, no, you just look at them up here. And she keeps them there so, so that really the, the audience, the full audience of the auction can see. And um, then the, she gets the legislature man. The legislature man comes over and looks at her papers and has a say in front of the crowd. Yep, this is true. She's free. She's she's papers. Um and and he and then she works for the legislature man. Um and um and and she lives with uh, him for a while and then she uh looks for her mother again right after the war and gets information that there's a camp. She calls uh-huh. it a refugee camp in Wharton County, Texas. And she says, um, I find my mama in Wharton County and it's crying and, um, and, and rejoicing. And she goes and lives with her mother. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's how she spends her freedom is f- she ends up, I mean, and this, she's an extraordinary figure, an exceptional. This is not, this is rare. There aren't, um, there are more funerals than reunions in this period, unfortunately, but Mary is that one figure that I wanted to be emblematic for um, what I saw um, and kind of the resilience, the tenacity, the direction of people's migrations during this period and um, and, and just that kind of the, 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 the drumbeat of a call over and over and again to find my mother, find my mother, find my mother. Um, so that legal slavery that she could have enjoyed in, in St. Louis was was noise. Was not enough, was, right. Not enough, right. exactly. Uh, yeah, I uh, can't wait for the movie. It sounds like <laughs> such a great such a great story. And, and, you know, as you say, so much of it is 
explaining what seems like just just movement, just just flight uh, uh, at at a time of dislocation, mm-hmm. but but uh, it's amazing how much of it is uh, motivated by. Uh, the need to reconstitute family and how much that mm-hmm. is a part of your story. So uh, say a little about uh, what life is like in, in these uh, refugee camps that are, uh, you know, mm-hmm. all throughout the, the, the kind of border of the South and, mm-hmm. and beyond. Yes, yes. They're, uh, they're in Tidewater, Virginia. They're in D.C. They're um, along the coast in uh, North Carolina and South Carolina, um, up the Louisiana, from Louisiana, up the Mississippi River. And then they're really even spread out um, uh, uh, in the um, inner uh, part of the United States um, through Kentucky and Tennessee. And the life, life inside them is... Uh, you know, is rough. It's, you know, very much, and why the refugee camp is such an apt term is because you see a lot of the same kind of humanitarian crises that we see in refugee camps today. Uh, the union and missionaries are coming down uh, from lots of Yaleys, lots uh-huh. of well-educated Bostonian abolitionists when you're ready to play out the kind of experiment of freedom. Um, so it's rough in in. In, in, ca- in the case of, of a lot of rare uh, resources. And so you see death, you see um, uh, you see more and more um, crowding, um, uh, under-resourced problems with shelter. Water is all over these documents because trying to get fresh water is uh-huh. the hardest thing. But that said... Um, you also have schools, you have Bibles, you have um, books coming in, you have, they are just avaricious for literacy. Um, and you have um, meetings, uh, religious meetings that, that are happen, you know, almost every night, there's, you know, midnight meeting happening again and again. And you see this, that there are really essentially re- revivals happening in these refugee camps, um, these religious revivals that are um, very much narrating their, their emancipation moment. Now, now, and these are people who uh, have been exposed to Christianity, but often it's by slave masters themselves, which is a very different sort of Christianity, mm-hmm. even though they've managed to fashion it into something that's useful for them. But how does that and, and everything else that they bring with them mm-hmm. to these camps, how does that uh, jibe with, uh, with the uh, more organized uh, religions, that are, uh, uh, religious organizations mm-hmm. that are entering into the camps and, 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 uh, and working mm-hmm. with them. How does, how does that, those two, those two <laughs> things mix up? Yeah, plenty of, there's plenty, because there's plenty of co- conflict, but there's, you know, it's, it's like a cultural encounter. Um, and it's um, very much, um, you know, you have a, a Protestant ecumenical moment with these groups coming down, um, these, these humanitarian groups who are very much bathed in evangelicalism and in abolitionism. And um, they are, and they've been trying to integrate for a long time. So you even have um, some black uh, teachers going to the South, like Charlotte Fortin. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very different kind of experience of religion. Um, and it's becoming more and more a civic religion, um, especially as they're trying to bring it into a, a school rubric, than, it, than what you see from the, in the folk religion of a lot of the refugees coming into the camps. Um, you know, I, I, we were talking about this earlier. The black church is is 
absolutely born um, before the Civil War. Um, but in the South, there's the invisible institution, uh, as the scholar Albert Rabateau um, says, this is what 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 really there where they could really experience religion was in the hush arbor in in the cabins where the, you would have to turn down the pot uh, to catch the sound because your rituals um, they the master can't hear them especially if they're um, against slavery uh, so this invisible institution comes into the camps as much as the you know what the revivals of the mid 19th century you know the evangelical christianity and the and even the masters version of protestant christianity has come into the camps the conflict is um really about when do you worship um when how do you draw lines do you worship at night a lot of a lot sure. you know or do you worship during the day do you worship on only on sundays um you know when do when can you pray when is it appropriate to bring religion into daily life and this is where you see the conflict coming into play and I, the missionaries at first are are delighted by it uh, and then increasingly they become a little wary of the way there is no there's no secular space for refuge for the refugees they see they feel that's how that's how essentially they're narrating it they're feeling very much like um, they take things that that missionaries presuppose as secular uh -huh. and sacralize them right right yeah and it becomes um, a, a a kind of lightning rod for this potentiality this it could, could be potentially um glorious this new you know road to nationalism and unity or it could be potentially dangerous kind of a, a potential africanization of of christianity of of the nation um and so there's a this this dual um these dual narratives going on and you can see how religion and religious practice gets um uh, touted and encouraged in some cases and in other ways suppressed and punished. Yeah, and uh, yet ultimately has uh, has a huge effect, it seems to me, on 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 what becomes the the black church, or at least in a lot of uh, its manifestations. And uh, uh, and it's really incredible to see uh, the refugee camps at this time as being a place where people are coming together, and not just uh, the white abolitions, but you know, African-American church members and former slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also, you know, I, as I understand from your research, a place that, uh, that is, is largely kind of defined and controlled by women, because so many of the men are, are not, in, not in these camps. And, and why is that first, and, yeah. and how is it the women uh, take that, that lead? It's interesting because um, you know we've, we're told so much in this story. This is you know it's it's a civil war, so we I've inherited you know in my American education was spoon fed the soldier to citizen, and it's 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 not a, a, a bad narrative. Um, the black military service is absolutely pivotal in turning the nation's opinion to uh, even contemplating black citizenship. Um, but what's what I find in my research is that there's a real tentativeness of um, a lot of the black male refugees to enlist um, because at the beginning of the war, um, these camps, um, a lot of people come in 
in uh, large groups, sometimes in family groups. And a lot of times men want to stay with their families. They want to stay near their families. They're trying to stay near their families. Sure. Um, and, you know, and in many cases, the Confederacy is trying to pull, already trying to pull able-bodied men into service and trying to take them away. Um, this is the reason why a lot of men and uh, run toward the union in the first place uh, is to be able to stay near their families. So once the union conscripts black men, um, what you do see is the numbers on the rosters going down for black men in the camps. Um, they are tentative, but they kind of negotiate. Um, they, they, I want a legal marriage. I want a guarantee for a rations for my family. And then they become majority women and children, so much so that, you know, in the Mississippi Valley camps, um, this, you're looking at numbers like 57% of the camps are, are um, uh, children. Um, and so you have women children, um, elderly and disabled people in these camps, uh, they still be, do subsistence farming. They're still um, worshiping. Uh, they're still, even the women are, are able to work for wages for about $4 a month. And they really, be, but women also band together and they're making the homes. They're, they're chopping the wood. They're actually also imagining what freedom is going to look like. What's going to look like look like after the war? They're keeping the homestead or trying to in this kind of land aspiration that um, free people are are pursuing. You know, women are are really trying to keep their squatters' rights. So, um, are they are they taking more of a, a role in 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 like religious worship and leading those sorts of things and in general the public? public sphere of, of the camp? Do you see uh, kind of a move from that? Um, so I think in terms of, you know, are, are they religious leaders? I mean, what you have is you don't have the same um, structure of, you know, we're starting a we're starting a church or we're starting a, a, a movement and I am, you know, uh, here's what the leadership structure is going to be. Instead, you have a kind of the, the communal gathering and then someone just someone's going to lead the canticle and then someone starts to sing and, so, and then someone joins in. Um, you have, um, you know, a, a lot of, especially the older men, they'll have um, lead funeral services. So there are still some gendered, you know, um, oh, you know, father, you know, you, you can you can lead this funeral service. But you but women um, absolutely are pushing in in religious ways. And this actually is is huge in in the black church tradition in many ways that even though and what we see, especially after the war, is that black men beca become the church leaders. Women are often fueling the church movement. Sure. So they are and that that absolutely when you have um, AME uh, um, uh, chaplains coming down and uh, Henry McNeil Turner and um, others are you know when they publish their there are all these you know 1880s 1890s um, publications by all these different church leaders in the you know AME Church AME Z AME Zion and um, 
this is the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and they're all talking about their mothers, how influential their mothers were. Um, the, and when they talk about going, and you hear this, Henry McNeil Turner, the mother, the women are the ones who are clamoring for it, are pushing for it. There's even um, Elsa Barkley Brown is a historian who talks about the voting rights that um, they women have immediately in these um, religious huh. assemblies. Um, so, so there's absolutely leadership, female leadership, um, but there's but I also want to stress the kind of communality, the ability to create, that religion had to create networks. Um, so what becomes of these camps? And, and maybe more importantly, what becomes of the communities that have formed within these camps and, and their practices? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think the, the camps are, are you know, officially the idea is the camps are broken up. You know, I, I, and in my and what I study, I, I try to um, include those camps that are, um, you know, black run, <laughs> black built. I mean, people, black refugees are often more in charge than um, than in the union is. There's other cases where the union is very much the the reigning figure, but there are plenty of places that are semi autonomous. Um, so the union officially breaks up these camps, is trying to break up these camps. Um, there's some relocation efforts. Some northern groups even try to ha have some relocation. Oberlin's trying to get people um, there. Um, but um, you have, uh, with the disbanding, people trying to carve out their own space trying to land ownership is still an aspiration it happens in, in a very small way in a small scale but a lot of um, a lot of the dreams of land ownership that's that start getting played out are dismantled but that's that's not the case everywhere in um, in Washington DC you know actually on on the site of Arlington cemetery Arlington to to build expand on that cemetery the United States government had to buy out the refugee camp, the remaining refugee camp that wow. was there, um, huh. Freeman's Village. Um, I think they paid $7,000 for it. Um, and um, and each family got a cut and um, and then was able to, to buy land elsewhere. Um, but they, they, they stayed until 1890. Um, so you see persistence and you see that in some ways there was still community formation um, and also even the, the memory of these places Fort Monroe comes up again and again I mean I'm looking at WPA narratives from the 1930s um, so these places were part of a, a, a geograph geographical memory sure. um, and you also see places on the map that did not exist before I mean sometimes you hear you know the, the Negro town um, or the Negro settlement um, that becomes a town like Ariel in Kentucky that wasn't there before um, before Camp Nelson um, uh -huh. the camp the camp was there. Um, it yeah. seems like sometimes they they just put roots down in, yeah. in where they are that they become a, a real permanent community. I mean, there's there's a I mean there's the other side of the story which is you know the bigger side of Reconstruction which is you know when. And the president, when Lincoln dies and Andrew Johnson gets into power, he he gives he pardons a lot of former Confederates and gives them back land that was that people had thought was going that refugees had thought would potentially be theirs. Um, so they do become a lot of become sharecroppers, and you don't have. 
um, this, this, you have dashed hopes, a kind of lost promise. But you, what you do have is a kind of a, a refusal to go back to the old geography. You're not, it's not the big house and the cabins. They're, they are, um, if you look at an aerial view, you'll see that, that people are trying to still keep their, com- keep a link to each other and, sure. and still trying to, um, you know, the South is very much the black South. 95% of the black nation's black population is in the South at this time. And, you know, I think, you know, even linking up to where, bringing me full circle to when I lived in Mississippi, that was something that my um, students really reminded me. You know, the South wasn't this kind of just white, um, you know, uniquely racist place that the South is still 55% of the nation's black population still lives in the South. And that's it's the highest concentration in, of any re- region. And you can see those ties are still there. Um, and and reckoning with slavery is still something kind of a, a national, um, you know, something in the national consciousness, something that you know, each one of us needs to work through to kind of, and lo- looking through these refugee stories, you saw a lot of what that promise was, what, how, how they thought of each other, how they thought of, what do you do? What do you do when, when, the, ma- when the master, when all you've known has just been severed in a second, and now you're finding your people, and you, and you have an s- idea of what your people are, and and you but you got to build it and you got to and you can see this in in co-it forms happening in these refugee camps and it's that promise that I want to to look at and, and in geographical ways um, and also in in different cultural ways how it goes into to, into the spiritual strivings that continue and continue to fuel the, not only the religious black religion but um, black politics um, through the present. Well. Thanks so much, Abby. I think this is really exciting, groundbreaking work, and I can't wait to read the book, and and we hope you can come back and yeah. talk about the book. Yeah. Uh, and I guess just before we go, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, is, is there a book you can recommend? You know, I, I guess my, my recommendation, to, to stay with the theme of, of what we've been talking about, um, of, you know, the, some of the muses I think of, and... Uh, um, you know, have have really kind of I come back to when I when I want to read something, and and this is you know very Barnard of me um, is that is Zora Neale Hurston. Um, is, I'll do Zora, Zora Neale Hurston's Sanctified Church, which is actually you know you know one of one that that isn't often read, and I, that's 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 that would be it's a, it's a slim volume, but it is it's the one I go to, and that's the one that I think even your listeners would 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 like to pick up. So Zora Neale Hurston, Sanctified Church, that's well, one. Thanks for leaving us with that. And it's been a pleasure having you here at the Gilder Lehrman Center. And best of luck with the book. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much, Tom. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.